Welcome to the weekly teaching podcast of Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas, recorded live at 2828 Crossover in Fayetteville, Arkansas. For notes and resources accompanying this teaching, visit gracechurchnwa.org. Thanks for listening. We're glad you're here. So I get it out of the way, but I am addicted to a certain um, flyer that I get in the mail called Sierra Trading Post. Does anybody else get that? in the mail. It is, it is, for those of you that don't know, Sierra Trading Post is an online bargain hunter's bonanza for all things outdoor. And they carry all the incredible brands, Patagonia and, and uh, all the, just all the outdoor stuff. And I, and I really have to watch myself because that shopping cart will fill up very, very quickly. Especially when it says, if you spend this much, we'll give you an additional. 30% off and free shipping if you hit this this amount and uh, But we love that bargain, right? What, what is just take a minute? What are some of the best bargains you've ever got? Think about that. I want I want us all to think about that like anybody want to share something like what's the best bargain you found with something like that? Yes Ten bucks for the smartest dog ever that's a bargain. Anybody else? $500 for, um, for, that he's driven for four years. That's a bargain. What else? There, there you go. Was that, now, was that New York City? Like, out of the... <laughs> I got I got it. <laughs> That's the thing, right? I mean, we're Americans, and we don't expect to get what we pay for. We expect to get more <laughs> than what we pay for as Americans. We're bargain hunters, wildcatters, fortune makers. We, we love closing the deal, striking it rich, back, bagging that exceptional bargain. These are our cultural trophies. It's the way we count coup as a people. From the crib, we learn that competition is key, the magic sauce that fuels innovation, creativity, wealth, and ultimately happiness. But how does this mindset affect us in the church? When we gather, how easy is it for us to check that hyper-competitive consumer culture at the door and then come in here and take on a kingdom mindset, a gospel ethos. And what if we're, what if we're really supposed to live with that kingdom mindset all week? Not just here when we gather on Sunday mornings. I mean, we even, we even couch the gospel in economic terms. We talk about it being a bargain, what we get to follow Jesus. We talk about it in terms of trading, consuming economics with that. Look, this is not just a hypothetical question. It's of critical importance to us today. Just as it was for believers who made up the church at Corinth. And this week we're going to take a deep look at that. 
Because as we've been going through this Can I Get a Witness series, this is how we've been evaluating this. We've, we've looked at Jesus who has come, Jesus who has died, Jesus who has been resurrected and ascending, ascended, and then sending the Holy Spirit. And then how was that interpreted by the different faith communities that sprung up all around the area in response to the gospel? And last week, we saw that, that Jesus came, he died, he was resurrected, he ascended, the Spirit came, they went to the church at Thessalonica, and there was a fantastic response. There was a testimony that echoed throughout the land. And this week, and actually for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Corinth, and what we see is, in Corinth, Christ comes, he dies, he's resurrected, he ascends, the Holy Spirit comes, they start the church at Corinth, and there is division. There's division. It's not the same positive response that we saw in Thessalonica. Although there is definitely positive acceptance of the message, quickly the community devolves into conflict and disunity. So pray with me as we start and look into the text this week. Abba Father, we pray as we set our hearts, open our ears and our minds to study this text. Because you have a word for us. Holy Spirit, you have something that you want to speak to us and in us through this text. So give us minds to comprehend, ears to hear, hearts to obey that word. We ask this in Jesus' name. So we see Paul's encounter. We're going to do like we did last week. We're going to look at Paul's encounter and the start of the church in Corinth and Acts, and then we'll look at the letter that he writes back to them from the perspective of years later. Now I have to stay in one place while I teach. So, let's look at Acts 18. After this, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla before Claudius, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to depart from Rome. Paul approached them and because he worked at the same trade, he stayed with them and worked with them, for they were tent makers by trade. And just pause here for a minute. Uh, Paul is coming from Athens. And he, he's coming from a situation where he, it, it, we don't have time to go into it, but his speech at Athens is considered one of the, one of the seminal presentations of the gospel to a non-Jewish audience that was ever made. And it was probably something that Paul had been building up to, working for, working on for most of his ministry up to that point. It was going to be like the crowning achievement of his reasoning. And we have no First Athenians book in the Bible. We don't have First and Second Athenians. We don't, we don't have, even though we know that a church started there, it was small and it was inconsequential. And from everything we know, his efforts there were largely without fruit. So Paul comes and he's, and in a way, he's, he may be a little despondent. He may be a little discouraged and he lands in Athens. And as often I'll do when I'm 
discouraged or depressed, it's like, I just need something to do with my hands. I'm going to go out and mow the lawn. <laughs> I'm going to go do something physical where I don't have to think. And I think maybe that's part of why Paul just went back to tent making here to regroup and to do something physical to work through this. Um, Aquila and uh, Priscilla were there because persecution was starting. Uh, persecution was starting even against the Jews by Claudius, the emperor. So they had fled and they were there and they were all tent makers and they started this community. And I, you can imagine the conversations they were having as they were working together. So it goes on. He addressed both the Jews and the Greek in the synagogue every Sabbath. And remember these, these far-flung outposts, the, the Jews would meet, but also the God-fearing Greeks, the, the Greeks who were attracted to this idea of one God, who were fleeing from the idolatry around them. He addressed both the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue every Sabbath, attempting to persuade them. Now, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul became wholly absorbed in proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And again, I, it's imagination, right? But you see that encouragement that comes from his coworkers as they come and they start to say, hey, Paul, come on, you can do this. We'll take care, we'll take care of the tent making. We'll take care of the business. You devote yourself to teaching. And so Paul does this. But look what happened. As we've seen and will continue to see, when he really gets down to proclaiming Jesus, when it really comes down to the person and the work and the power of Jesus, opposition arises. When they opposed him and reviled him, he protested by shaking out his clothes and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am guiltless. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went to the house of a person named Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. I love this. I love, this is like the kid who runs away. Did you ever do this when you were a kid? All right, you get mad at your parents. I'm running away. And then you go sit on the porch. I can remember one time when I, I was going to run away. I, I must have been six, maybe. I was really young. I ran away to a hole in the hedge of the bushes outside of my mom's and dad's bathroom window. Like I was really going to scare them. I was going to run away. And I ran away and I made this little cubby hole back there, this little fort in the hedges. And I didn't realize I was right under the window. So they were listening to me the whole time. Right? They knew just where I was foiling my plan to cause them distress. Paul, in a way, does the same thing. It's like, I'll never talk to you again. I'm only going to talk to the Gentiles who are right next door. <laughs> and he moves in right next door. It's like he can't escape. He, he loves them too much. As we see, even Crispus, it goes on, Crispus, the president of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians who heard about it believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul by a vision in the night, do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent, because I am with you, and no one will assault you to harm you, because I have many people in this city. So he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And this is one of the few places where Paul really embedded himself with the community. This is one of the few places where Paul spent time and built deep relationships that can only come from spending a lot of time. And not just time together like this where one person's talking and everybody's listening, but I mean time doing things together like was done yesterday. Time doing things, you know, 
pulling out the mold in the refrigerator and cleaning toys and mowing the grass and pulling weeds and, and doing those things together. This built this community that Paul deeply felt was precious with that. But time passes. Paul moves on. He goes on to different places. And later on, he writes back this letter. So think about that. Think when Paul leaves and he understands he's, he spent a, at least a year and a half, probably more, probably more like two years, he's invested in his life. He knows these people. He doesn't just know about them. He knows them. He knows their faces and their names. And, and he's spent time. He's eaten with them. He's suffered with them. He's baptized them. He's been with them. But a report reaches him when he writes back, and this is how he starts his letter. This is 1 Corinthians. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to agree together, to end your divisions, to be unified by the same mind and purpose. For a member of Chloe's household, and made it clear to me, my brothers and sisters, there are quarrels among you. Interesting here, household speaks of the predominant person in the household. So this was a household that was led by a woman named Chloe. She was a leader in the church. This was probably a house church that met at her, at her house. She was the leader. There were probably other house churches. Maybe Aquila and Priscilla were still there. If they had, Later on, we catch up with them in different places. And he writes back because he's heard this despairing, this distressing news that they're fighting, they're quarreling. He goes on to say, now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am with Paul, or I am with Apollos, or I am with Cephas, or I am with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul, Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you in fact baptized in the name of Paul? Now here's some names that we don't often associate with the church. Apollos, who was Apollos? Well, Apollos, we know, was a Jew who came to know the gospel indirectly. He heard it, he was a third generation Christian in a way. He heard it from someone else, but was filled with the Holy Spirit. And being a very eloquent speaker, went on to become an, a major figure in the early church. Some people ascribe the, the authorship of Hebrews to Apollos. They say that he was the author of that book. Um, but regardless of that, he was a major figure, an attractive figure, a charismatic figure, who drew a great number of followers. Cephas here is just another name for Paul, I don't know, or for Peter. I don't know if Paul's giving him a little dig there. Instead of calling him Paul, he calls him Cephas. We don't know that. Um, and then Paul. And, and what's happening here is we see a cult of personality developing. People are choosing different, different personalities to follow and using that as a context for division, for arguing, for quarreling. Paul goes on and he says this, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. Oh, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Otherwise, I don't remember whether I baptized anyone else. You love the inspiration of scripture here, right? I, we, we talked about it in the teaching meeting this week. You would, you would think if Paul had any idea that we would still be reading this letter 2,000 years later, he would have said, hold on, scratch that, get a new parchment. <laughs> But instead, he was just saving space, right? Oh, hold on. Wait, I did do this. Include that. And then he goes on. He said, for I did not come, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
and not with clever speech so that the cross of Christ would not become useless. Cross of Christ useless. How could disunity render the cross useless? I mean, didn't Jesus just come to die so I could go to heaven when I die? Or is there something more that's going on here, something more that the gospel is here to provide for us? And, that, and the question we have to ask is this, how, do, how can we speak the truth and remain a unified church? How can we proclaim the gospel and remain a unified church? Because what I want to show you, go back up there, Jeff, you had it. Feli called me a nerd for doing this the other day. But I went through and just made a brief timeline. And don't, don't try to read it all. Jeff will just click through it. But what I did is I, I color-coded a timeline of Christian history. And you can just keep rolling through those slides. Um, with different cultural events, different major figures, different things that happened in the history of the church. And honestly, if you are interested in this and are a Bible nerd, I'd love to talk to you. Because this stuff fascinates me. <clears throat> but y'all, this is 2,000 years of us trying to do what Paul says here. Be of one mind. Be unified together. And honestly, our track record is pretty pathetic. It's pretty terrible. I would love to say, I would love to say that Paul wrote this letter and they said, and they had, a, they had a, literally a come to Jesus meeting. And they all repented and they all got together and they all said, yes, we're going to be one in Christ. But we have abundant evidence throughout history that that is not what happened. And it has yet to happen with that. So what do we do? How do we do this? Well, I think we have to start by understanding the things that threaten to divide us. And obviously, look, the thing that ultimately threatens to divide us is sin. There's no doubt about that, right? We got that. That's, that permeates. But how does it play out in our particular culture? What does it mean for Grace Church? What does it mean for us today? What is that thing that threatens to divide us? Well, I would really say in, in truth for us, it's this culture of competition and consumerism, individualism that comes with that. It's just, it's almost impossible for us to check that at the door. We even use not just economic terms like, hey, you get a bargain when you get, when you get the gospel. We even talk about church shopping. Like you just shop for the church like another thing like another religious good or service. And, and, we, and we, we bargain shop. You know, where can I get the most bang for my buck among churches? And listen, that's almost, that's almost impossible not to do in our context. Not only because that's our cultural ethos, but because of the variety of churches that are available. The variety of worship experiences. Heck, you don't even have to go to church. You can get everything you need as far as religious goods and services off the web, on a podcast, on a YouTube channel, with that. And it is destroying us as a church. 
When we bring that ethos into the church, it is tearing us apart. It is in direct opposition what Paul said to the church at Corinth. Because when we do that, we are likewise doing the exact same thing. Well, I'm of this church. Well, I'm of this pastor. Well, I'm of this philosophy. I'm of this theology. And we divide and we divide and we divide and we splinter and we keep going and we keep going until finally, ultimately, where it lands is, I am a church of one. I've had a number of conversations over the last few months, and I can't tell you how distressing it is to me when I hear someone with no conviction of, or with no, how do you say it? They're perfectly content with their conviction that they have all they need by themselves. They don't need to go to church. They don't need community. Or if they need community, it's their, you know, it's their book club. Or it's their group of friends that they play basketball with. Or it's their social circle that they communicate with on Facebook. But they have absolutely no need of the church. And they feel like, in, in a way, that they've attained some sort of spiritual enlightenment that allows them to exist as such. Hey, you know what? I, I'm happy. I'm good. You know, I, I, I believe in God. I'm a Christian. I read and I listen to podcasts and I read Christian books and I listen to Christian music and I'm a good person. I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody. And they're totally content. As a church of one. And that's an absolutely, that's an absolute oxymoronic statement. You cannot be a church of one. It is impossible to do. And, and before we address these things that are tearing us apart, we have to address where they're coming from. We have to recognize that while competition absolutely has a place in economic systems, where consumerism definitely within different contexts and stuff is, is a way of ordering ourselves politically and distributing goods and services, it has no place in the church. It has absolutely no place in the church. And so we have to recognize that tendency within ourselves and be ruthless in rejecting it as a way of ordering ourselves as the church. Well, how then are we going to learn to disagree? I mean, if we, can't, if we can't argue over whose idea is best, whose idea wins, which idea is the most profitable, how do we disagree? Because the, the thing is, the gospel is not about uniformity. The gospel is not about just checking all those preferences and all those things at the door and then just showing up and letting whatever happens, happens. That's not, that's not the opposite of what I'm talking about. The opposite of what I'm talking about is an intentional unity built around people willing to lay down their preferences, lay down the right to be right in every and all situations, and come together for the sake of the whole, in the sake of the gospel. We have to learn a whole new language of disagreement. 
I'll never forget when Jane and I were first married, um, I'm, I'm a pretty stubborn guy. <laughs> and um, we were both a little bit older when we got married. We were all the way into our 20s, you know, when we got married. And so we had built up quite a, quite a number of preferences along the way of how to do things. And we're both, uh, we're both pretty, pretty stuck on those preferences, right? And when we came together, uh, the honeymoon, you know, was great, but pretty quick after that, there was some conflict in our relationship. And, all, and we, would, we would fight, and there would be no resolution to the fight because we didn't know how to fight. And so we would, we would just get all worked up, but there would be no resolution. And so it wouldn't go away. The, the problem wouldn't go away. And it wasn't until, some, for some reason, we were stuck with each other. We started a fight, and we, and we couldn't leave. Because my deal was I would get mad, and I'd just, I'd just leave. I'd just bolt out the door. Come back, apologize, but really nothing was resolved. And so for some reason, we had to stay together the whole time. And what we, what we realized was the problem wasn't that we were fighting. The problem was that we weren't fighting long enough. We weren't staying there until there was resolution. We weren't staying there until that adrenaline flood passed. And then there was time for more rational thinking with that. And the church has never stayed together long enough in some ways to get to that point of resolution. At the first sign that someone might believe differently than we do or act differently or something, we just flee. We just run. We just get out of there. And there's no resolution. And as a result, we have hundreds, if not thousands, not tens of thousands of different denominations and expressions and things. And yet, here's the thing. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all the myriad ways we have tried to screw things up, the church is. We're here. We are gathered in the name of Jesus. And so there is still hope. God has not given up. God has not thrown up his hands and left us alone. God is still here. The Holy Spirit is still given to us as a church to do this thing, to discover true unity. But until we recognize that there is a problem, that will never be achieved. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And instead of trying to offer some simple answer to what that's going to take beyond just recognizing the problem and the things that contribute to the problem, I want us to sit with this for this week. I want us to sit with this realization. I want us to sit with this reality that we don't know how to argue we don't know how to be unified. We don't know what it takes to be one body. Next week, we're going to get to hear from Lucian. He's going to come up and teach. And as we're working through this, as the Holy Spirit speaks to us this week, we hope to have an answer, or at least a way to find an answer together. But we really need to sit with the problem first. So this week, that's what we're going to do, is to sit with this situation and then come together next week around what Paul presents as the answer. 
As we do this in transition now, the worship, the communion table will be up. There's one table. <laughs> it represents the unity that Paul prayed for, that Jesus came to bring us to die for and sends his spirit to call us to. There's one body that's broken. There is one body that gives its blood, and that is the body of Jesus. It's not my body. It's not Alex's. It's not Paul's. There's one body that was broken for us, and that's the body of Jesus. And there's one church that comes to this table. There's not these people and those people and those. This, there's one church that comes to this table, the church of Jesus Christ. The church that puts him as the head, that sees him as the savior, that honors him as the way, the truth, and the life. If you're part of that church, if you want to be part of that church, if that's what you're trying to do, you're welcome at this table. But that's, this table is for that church, that one church. And after we've shared this meal together, there'll be an offering that's taken. And that offering goes to promote the one church, the church of Jesus, that we're learning to be an expression of. It's not to the exclusion of the other churches in town. We're trying to do that with them in this. And if you need prayer, if you need to find someone to pray with, pray for, this is the time to do that, to engage in that. Thank you for being here this morning and taking this seriously. Thanks again for listening to the weekly podcast from Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas. If you have any comments or questions or would like to know more about us, visit gracechurchnwa.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram too. We hope you join us again soon. In the meantime, grace and peace and have a great week.